Let's now follow the visualization that Swamiji recommends for this lesson. This lesson is on leadership. So the visualization is about where is our source of energy and when we act to guide and inspire others, what force are we giving them? Where does that power come from? So he starts by saying, Visualize a shining light radiating outward from the heart of infinity. Use your creative imagination in whatever form that would take. Take down all boundaries. Infinity has no boundaries. And see at the spiritual eye a radiating light. Feel now that you are not looking at that light, but that you are that light. That that radiating force from the heart of infinity is actually one's own self. Feel standing in the center of that infinite light. That you yourself are sending out the light rays that sustain the universe. Feel oneself to be merely a flow of infinite light and energy. Now imagine yourself more in the way we normally think of ourselves, interacting with people, speaking, sharing, as if you were watching a movie of yourself. But feel also that you can see simultaneously behind that form and that obvious figure and see really that one is still just a transparency for that flow of infinite light. Feel as if the universe itself Every person you meet is drawing through you that infinite light. In fact, you are a necessary channel for that infinite light. All those around you are hungry for that light. Standing in the center of that light, you can give. Feel nourishing love nourishing life force passing through you from the center of infinity. Think not of yourself as the instrument, but of the light and of the benefit to those to whom you are giving. Understand that insofar as you can guide, lead, or inspire others, it is merely because you are an instrument for this infinite light. But as an instrument, you have a divine duty not to do anything specific, but first and foremost to be an instrument of that light 
and the intelligence of that divine energy will guide you in every other way. Now affirm with me, I am self-contained. I need nothing. I live to serve all. So that together we may grow into the highest success of all. God's joy. I am self-contained. I need nothing. I I live to serve all. all. So that together together. we may grow grow. into the highest success of all. all. God's joy. joy. I am self-contained. I need nothing. I live to serve all. So that together we may grow into the highest success of all. God's joy. Om. Peace. Amen. Okay, we are still working on Lesson 10. This is the second half of Lesson 10 called How to Be a Good Leader. Um, This is really one of the most important lessons there is. I mean, it's possible, I mean, there are professions and there is work that we do which is entirely solitary. You know, a creative artist works just by himself or herself sometimes, but even still, sooner or later, we come in contact with others and even the art of inspiring oneself. One is uh, not a singularity, but as Swamiji often says, a whole community of mental citizens and we not only... We have to also lead them toward our appointed goals. But most of our work in one way or another comes down to getting along with people, whatever work we have. It's um, an interesting fact that so little energy is given in our modern educational system to how to really get along with people. In fact, the whole emphasis is on competition rather than cooperation or support or leadership. And leadership is uh, often, too often seen as self-aggrandizement and reward and rarely really taught as service. But the individual who can inspire others and bring the best out of others is the one who really has the greatest chance of success usually. Now, do we have any questions or thoughts from where we were week before or shall we just go forward? You rarely do, but I like to give you a chance. Okay. So... I started last, I talked last week a lot in general about Swami and my experience of him as a leader. This week I'd like to just work more with his principles. Let me just sort of find. Hmm. Um, Swamiji talks a lot here, let me just second, yes. You know there's a, one of the, the, the understandings of leadership that Swamiji really wants to convey in general through this whole uh, lesson is a very important point, and it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. He, he often says in various places, leadership is not a privilege, leadership isn't a, 
uh, a status symbol. He says leadership is a service. And to be the leader is to be the one who serves the welfare and the needs of others. It's not a position in which others serve one's welfare and needs. You know, that's, there's an instinctive... Uh, well, there's a scandal going on in our country, in essence, uh, as the, uh, the sort of the sheer um, veniality of so many of our leaders is being exposed. You know, the political process is one of such intense self-interest. The business world is one of almost overwhelming avarice and greed. You know, it's just almost appalling to see how little actual selfless leadership there is. And Swamiji has, has, has emphasized the point that the position of leadership, which someone can easily imagine to be the position of greatest freedom, because after all I'm in charge, is actually in many ways the position of the least freedom. Because once you have the responsibility for guiding a child or directing a company or leading a school classroom or whatever, it, whatever your leadership might be, um, all of a sudden your own preferences and realities always have to be seen in the context of everyone else's. And another way of putting it is that your art form at that point becomes everyone else's energy. It's like whatever it is that you're trying to create, you're having to try to create it out of everyone else's energy. It's one thing if you're just a company of one and you're all by yourself and you're writing a book or painting a painting and it's just you and your own creative process. Even then, some of these principles are still valid. But once you're in a position of leadership, it becomes absolutely not about you and all about everyone else. Everyone but you is more important. And it's a very interesting blend. And Swamiji often says also that leadership is just a talent like any other's. Any other, like being able to cook, being able to sing, being able to paint, just having a, a, the ability to sort of take the flow of energy that's generated by many different forces and balance it all out and move it in a positive direction. And it, it's really interesting to think of it both those ways, as an art form and um, as, a, as a talent, because then you realize also it's something that be, can be con- cultivated And it's also something like, if you think of an art form, you're not really thinking about yourself so much as you're thinking about what it is that you can have come through you. And then Swamiji describes in this lesson a great many of the principles that he himself has magnificently demonstrated in his own life and the effectiveness of them. I have often said that this whole course is an autobiography on his part of how he started with nothing at all no one and no money at the age of 36 and built a worldwide spiritual organization. And of course, leadership is a huge part of that. On one hand, his leadership is based on spiritual stature and spiritual magnetism, but it's also been based on an extremely um, conscious and astute use of that magnetism. And one of the principles that I wanted to emphasize here is that Swami talks about is a leader must be a winning combination of patience and astuteness, which I thought was a very interesting way to put it. And he tells the story in here of a, an event um, that I also lived through. He tells, actually tells several different stories. But when I very first arrived at Ananda Village, and my memory of this is that happened within months of when I got there, there, were, there was some discussion trying to date this, and it could have been, I think the, the meeting happened in the fall of 71, but it might have happened in the spring of 72. 
But the context was this. I had moved all the way to Ananda Village um, from San Francisco and just sort of thrown my lot in with Ananda entirely and only because I was devoted to Swami Kriyananda and wanted to learn from him. As Swamiji writes in here, in the early years of what you see now as Ananda, Swamiji's leadership was was not universally acknowledged. And in fact, there was a large group of people who absolutely resisted everything that he did. Some of those people still to this day, literally, to this day still go around speaking against him, even after everything, you know, all that he's accomplished and all that he's done. They were just absolutely fixed in an anti-authoritarian position and he was the only authority around. As he often said, he was the only target, so naturally he got all the arrows. Um, But at that time, the controversy that I'm thinking about was when Swamiji had received money to build what is now Hansa Temple, which is the publications building there. And, And he wanted that building to be architecturally as it is, an interesting architecture, and he wanted it to be prominent. And he went through all the committees that existed in the community at this time, which, as he describes in here, he simply allowed to function without thinking they were kind of like a parallel universe to what he was really doing, cited the building in the only place that all of the rest of the community's plans would um, focus it. But then, when he actually declared that that was going to happen, there was just this brouhaha that just built, you know, blew up all over the community. And finally, it culminated in this meeting that we had in the what was the meditation retreat temple at that time. And I think this happened really early because I was so new, I just didn't have any idea how, how anything worked. And we sat in that meeting, and a large number of people just sat there, and one after another spoke about how they really thought this was a stupid idea, and they didn't want the project there, and what was, who was Swami Kriyananda to be telling us what to do, and like this. And, you know, I'm just like, totally thrown into the middle of this. I had no idea that there was such a division in the community that everyone in the world didn't feel as I did. And, and then at a certain point, Swami sort of folds his arms and says, I rarely speak out about what I really think should happen, but when I do, I expect to be listened to. And he said, and if you all won't agree to what I've decided with this building, then I'm simply not going to be, I'm going to leave. He said, I'm just not interested, I'm going to leave. And so he makes this very strong announcement like this. I'm sitting there, like, I've come to this community to be with him, and he's announcing that unless things go his way, or unless people respect his wishes, which is really what he was saying, and he also said it very emphatically, I don't, I don't ask very much of you, but I'm declaring that this needs to happen. And, and then there was like a silence for a moment, and then the same people just started talking about why it wasn't a good idea to put the building there. And I panicked is the only thing I can think of. It just, I, I couldn't, I didn't have any understanding. I didn't understand that a lot of other people who were more in tune than I was at that time were, were sort of letting it play itself out a little bit. But I just chirped up and I said, didn't you hear him? He says he's going to go. We've got to put the building there. You know, just like about as naive and, and, and I can hear the sound of my voice. It was just like that. Didn't you hear him? Like this. Just panic-stricken. And somehow that was whatever was needed. That was the signal for a whole lot of other people to start speaking in favor of what Swami was saying, in favor of the building, in favor of the principle that when he did ask, you know, something to happen, describing all the ways in which he contributed to the community and they had a perfect right to do that. 
and so on like that. And in fact, um, a lot of people walked out of that meeting and left the community afterwards. Now, I just watched it and didn't have any idea. But much later, sort of talking to Swamiji about it and just expressing to him, not, not much later, but somewhat later, just like, essentially, how could you risk it? And he sort of looked at me like I was as young as I was, <laughs> without being rude, and said, there was no risk. He said, I, I would never have called the meeting if I didn't know, you know, what the balance of the energy was. And I, I, I waited. I would never have taken such a stand if I didn't know what the balance of the energy was. You know, so it's that combination of patience and astuteness. And there's, a, there's another principle that he mentions in here, which is a leader should never take on a battle that he can't win. You know, if, if you really know that you do not have the support for whatever it is that you're going to try to do and that you're not going to be able to win the support, you should wait. Because it's, it's not good for a leader to be perceived as, as backing lost causes. It's not good for a leader to be perceived as someone who can't really rally the energy of the project that he's supposed to be responsible for. And so you have to be astute enough to be able to feel, not even just whether it's right, but as he says earlier in here, the art of leadership is balancing what's right with what's real. And so you may be right, but if you don't have the support yet for what's right, you have to do what you need to do to build that support before you dare take such a public position. I walked in, you know, at, at, at 1971 or early 72, and it had been already like three and a half or four years of this sort of back and forth, as Swami describes at great length in here, of people describing spirituality as being just irresponsible and self-indulgent, and him trying to establish a community that was, of course, based on much higher principles, and people coming to the community for all sorts of reasons with all sorts of levels of understanding, and him gradually um, inspiring a sufficient core, some of whom came with an understanding, and some of whom were simply won by his um, patient education to a deeper understanding of where they should be. But no, at no time previous to that did he really provoke such a confrontation because he wasn't sure it wasn't timely. You know, So it's very... Um, a leader has to be completely concerned about how the colors are going to go on the canvas, not merely what the picture is going to look like, and find another way to build the energy if you can't do it until this point. So if a leader hopes to win over controversy... He must combine patient with, patience with astuteness. I thought it was really extremely well put, the way he said it there. And then he says right after that, gradually, um, um, you, you shouldn't, let's see, I was, already, I was already, of course, confident that the majority were on my side. To have acted prematurely, he says, would have revealed incompetence. Let's see. And that's, that's one of those sort of factors. You, you, you have to... Let me think how to say it. You have to be optimistic. You have to be dynamic. You have to be positive. But you also have to be extremely realistic. And he he writes elsewhere in here, he said, people are egoic. People are involved in their self-interest. He said to accuse them of that is to accuse them of breathing. And, And most people 
don't have a selfless capacity to see the broader vision. And that's not meant to be unkind. In other books about leadership, Swamiji talks about you know, how to run a meeting and the benefit of committees or the detriment of committees. But he, he points out, and I, I, I love the way he said it, he said, most people don't have a lot of good ideas, but many people have a few good ideas. And so you always want to give people the opportunity to offer the good ideas that they do have, because not one person doesn't necessarily have all of them. But most people don't have the capacity to see the whole picture, and part of what the leader's art is, is to always keep that picture in mind, and to very patiently sort of bring that out. And Swami talks also earlier about the fact that there's a great mistake that many people make in leadership, which is to always trying to be solved contra- to create harmony by trying to persuade the dissonance to agree with you. But his technique for, for leading an individual, for developing an individual or developing a group, is you, you take the positive energy that's flowing and you keep increasing it. And this is one of those leadership techniques that's, that is profoundly applicable to the individual. So often individuals imagine that the way to develop themselves is to always be looking at what's not working and sort of lean on what's not working. But the, if one is always focused on one's weaknesses, the sense of self that one develops is an awareness always of weakness. And among other things, that's not very magnetic. And also, weaknesses are not usually resolved merely by staring at them. The way our weaknesses are resolved, generally speaking, is that they are sucked into a positive flow of energy. And by the dynamic experience of success, by the dynamic experience of being a channel for, for the light, we gradually realize that whatever it is that we imagine blocks us from that, experience tells us that it's not as, um, as bad as we thought. You know, go with your strengths has always been an Ananda precept. Find out what it is that you can do and then flow with those strengths because positive energy creates a vortex. And, and that vortex of flowing energy um, causes other forces to be drawn into that vortex. If you never create a positive vortex, then there's very little movement. And in the course of Ananda, especially in those beginning years, when it was, you know, just so divided. So Swami just paid very little attention to the people who were dissident. And, I mean, that annoyed them to a certain extent also. But he wasn't really concerned one way or another. He gave all his energy to the people who were interested. He gave, you know, he gave classes and everybody was invited to come, but he just was concerned about the people who came. He wasn't concerned about the people who didn't. And he had small sort of invitational gatherings at his house. And even if they were very small, he just worked with those whose energy was with him. In other words, he had something very specific to give. And if you wanted it, he poured it into you. And if you didn't want it, he wasn't going to go break down the doors. Now, the effect of that was was multifold. One is he developed you know, really extraordinarily talented people because he was able to concentrate without having to dilute the message because of the dissonant energy. And that would be when you would have these sort of small Sunday afternoon gatherings. In retrospect, I realized that's what he was doing. That was a small group of people that he knew could just, there was no obstacle to his being able to inspire them. 
And by, by focusing it down into a smaller group of people who were really in tune with him, then he built stronger and stronger energy. And it wasn't elitist in, in any sense. It was just a natural response to where the magnetism is. And um, the second thing that it, it is, is that when you create a positive vortex of energy, what happens is everything that's in tune with it gets drawn into it. And so people who are kind of half on the fence, I mean, it's just a very practical thing. People who are sort of not sure, but they see, they see energy moving They see people being very creative. They see them being successful. They see them being happy. They see them accomplishing a lot. You're sort of more inclined to move toward that. You're just drawn into it, if you're in tune with that at all. Or the opposite happens. The the stronger and more defined that vortex gets, if you're not in tune with it, you get spun out. And so it's sort of like negativity will take care of itself if you just increase the positive vortex. You know, sometimes there's a, a, it's necessary to provoke a showdown, and Swami just really chose his issue and provoked a showdown because he knew that the positive vortex was strong enough that he could stand up um, to that other force and that everything would move in the right direction. Um, even, as I said, even within ourselves, this is an extremely important lesson. It's not that you shouldn't ever talk to people who disagree with you, but you shouldn't make your program to win over the dissonance. You should just be, make your program to move forward with those who are strong. So, but sometimes you have to stay underground for a long time. In Swami Kriyananda's life, I've observed, you know, that even though his leadership and his right to it were self-evident, it was well into the 90s before he himself ever articulated that. Because it just wasn't timely to do so even though it was a fact. But finally in the 90s, he just really felt now is the time to just really say it strongly when we started getting into such a controversy with SRF especially. And that was just the time, finally, when it was just time to say things very clearly that until that time had just been a a fact, but not um, an articulated fact by him in the same light. It's really sort of interesting. He also makes the point, and I'm just pulling important points out of here, leadership is not important itself. Service is the key word. You know, and, and sometimes it's just, you say the leader is the servant. Now it's interesting because sometimes when people say, well, leadership is not important, they abdicate the responsibility. That's sort of a popular way to be a leader these days, is you're a leader by saying, well, gee, what do I know? I'm the one who's you know, standing up here, but you all have as many good ideas as I do, and so let's all just vote on what we'll do, and you all can decide. And, and it has a certain truth to it, but it also can develop into a real one-horsepower energy, as Swami calls it, where uh, you know, just everybody's always sitting around talking about things. And you know, in every situation, as I was saying a lot about this when I talked about this lesson before, there's always someone who has the magnetism. If, if, you ever, if you ever look anywhere at anything that's accomplished, no matter whether they're the, the stated leader or, or somebody just on the crowd, there's always somebody who, or, or a few people who have the magnetic force that's gluing the thing together. You know, there's another factor about negative energy that I forgot to say. You rarely have to be concerned about negative energy because negative energy, as Swamiji puts it, has, ha, doesn't have a cohesive force. The very nature of it is that it's, um, it can't hold together. 
Now that doesn't mean that negative people can't ever do evil things against good people, because it does happen. But, but when you're dealing with a group of people, if you have a coterie of negativity over here, don't allow yourself to become too um, concerned about it. Rather, as I was saying, devote that energy to creating, to strengthening the positive, because the negative energy tends never to organize itself in such a way, it, it's not cohesive as a rule. I mean, you have to be sensible about that, when you have to be astute, and you have to also be realistic. But when, when people come to you, and Swamiji would say, said this to me, you know, years ago, he said whenever, he, he sort of laid out for me the way that negativity expresses itself, and one of negativity's favorite ways of expressing itself is that one person comes and speaks and says, I really speak for a lot of people who are all afraid to come and talk to you. A lot of people agree with me, that's my favorite one. A lot of people agree with me. But usually it's just one or two, and they'll never tell you their names. I was talking to someone recently who was um, upset about something, and she kept saying to me, a lot of people agree with me. I said, look, either tell me their names, get them in the room, or stop talking about them, (laughs) because I can't deal with them, I can only deal with you. And, of course, you know, at that point, that's all you can do. But that's sort of, it's like it's not a clear energy. It's often very fuzzy, which is, if you can sense its power, sometimes people are very powerful in their negativity, and you have to be astute enough to figure out how that all balances, but that's something else. Um, And so, once again, you have to think in terms of service. So, if you have people who are depending on you to go forward, especially the people who are giving and loyal and in tune, you have an obligation to serve them. And you have an obligation not to dissipate your energy by trying to pick up people who aren't ever going to be with you. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes people take the positive good people for granted and think, oh, well, they're fine. I'll just give my energy over here. But the positive good people are the ones who who really merit your energy. And, and they're the ones who need to feel that you're conscious of how beneficial they are because the more you can build them and the whole situation up, and that's, you have to think in terms of how, who can I serve and how can I serve them. This is what, um, he, when he says this word, leadership is primarily service. You know, I'm, I'm thinking um, in, in the position of spiritual inspiration, but even in a business context, the people who are working hard and working well and working with you, you have to serve them. You can't just ignore them. You can't just say they're okay. They really deserve all the support and attention and guidance and leadership and inspiration you can give them. They've earned it. And the ones over here who are just causing you nothing but trouble, if you give all your energy to them, then you're... you're, You have to... You can only serve where people are receptive to what you have to give, is what I'm really trying to say. And if people are receptive, then they will magnetize a great deal out of you. And if they're not receptive, you're usually wasting your time anyway. Um, People who are habitually resistant will be resistant to everything you have to give. So, um, this is again where he's talking about positive versus negative energy. He says, positive energy, even if expressed only by a minority creates a vortex of energy and power. And that's because um, when you do what is right, you tap into a universal power. And that was one of the earlier um, principles that Swamiji was putting forward, which is it's extremely important as a leader 
to be absolutely honorable, to be absolutely ethical, and to, you know, to be fair and righteous in all that you do, because then you're working with, with a universal force that sooner or later will support you. This is the principle where there is right, right action, there is always victory. And so the force of positive energy is more in tune with the universal flow than the force of negative energy, and therefore even if the numbers are small, the power will end up being greater. Swamiji uses the example of, of lecturing and spiritual teaching as an example of leadership, and it's really quite an interesting one, really, because um, you know, so often when you're thinking in terms of a college professor or a class of some sort where a person has a certain amount of information to give to you and they have a series of notes and they just sort of give you the information and you write it down and then you try to memorize it and then you try to give it back. You know, there's, there's merely an exchange of information. But what we're really trying to do in most of our relationships with people, especially if we're in a leadership position, whatever that position may be, however it expresses, is we're trying to inspire people to be more in tune with whatever it is that we're trying to do together and then to make that attunement their own energy. And it's, um, you know, it's easy, as Swamiji says, you know, to use power and willpower to drive people forward. But the real art of leadership is to inspire them to want to come forward. And he, he says to be persuasive is the word he used. A similar persuasion. You can't merely talk at people as if you were trying to air your own ideas. He said it isn't even enough to talk to them to express your thoughts clearly, what is needed is to talk with them. One's words must, in other words, be directed at what people want and need to hear. And then he puts it, a leader must listen sensitively to the unspoken thoughts and questions. Now, he's talking about a lecture situation, for example, where people aren't speaking back to you. But uh, I'm, I'm reminded in this respect of something that's in Autobiography of a Yogi. When Sri Yukteswar was training Yogananda. And he said, you must learn to hear behind the confusion of men's verbiage whatever it is that they're actually trying to say. <clears throat> it's very interesting because <clears throat> in Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda just includes just a handful of things. And and from all his ten years of training with Sri Teshwar, he he includes just a handful of advice. But one of the things is that one. You must learn to listen behind what people are saying. And Swamiji talks about it from this point of view of being a public speaker. But what he's really saying is what he calls it inward listening. Um, and it's, it's part, of, part of being a leader is really not to be, I would have to say, to be more concerned with energy and less concerned at times with the literal meaning of things. You know, too often when people talk, they themselves don't know what they actually mean or people are not necessarily articulate in what they're trying to say. And oftentimes when people are talking, they're, they're just really trying to make a, a kind of energy connection. And from that energy connection is when their own ideas and inspiration are able to come forth. And so a leader really needs to cultivate the art of, of not necessarily just being able to sit quietly without interrupting, because sometimes you can't allow 
Um, as Swamiji talks about it, you know, you can you can have meetings in which people are all involved, but you can never allow the reins of the meeting to go out of your hands because otherwise you'll go in circles and never accomplish anything. And those people who are dynamically interested in accomplishing and not merely just sitting around wanting to air ideas will will lose interest in working with you. Um, But at the same time, when people are communicating with you, above all, in the position of a leader... You have to become very still within yourself. And, and it's very helpful with, with a spiritual inclination to, to sit in that moment and really visualize whoever you're with or whatever meeting you're in, no matter how uh, prestigious or business-oriented it may be, every single individual in the room is still just a person and just an aspect of the divine energy with the same inner needs and reality and all of us are connected through our superconscious understanding. And the more profoundly one can settle into one's own spiritual self and then lift your energy upward and just ask Divine Mother to guide this, you know, to, and feel as if the Divine is speaking to you through everyone and give each person that kind of respect. You know, their ideas might be bad, even their motives might be bad. But, you know, tune into the energy so that when you hear them talking to you, you're really actually hearing what's behind what they say. This is part of what makes you astute, is because you can begin to tell what people are really um, talking about. You can help people communicate better by really drawing that out of them. Swami talks about, even as a a lecturer, oddly enough, that Often, if he listens inwardly and answers the unspoken questions, it's more effective than letting people ask questions. Because sometimes what their, what their spirit is asking is not what their mind is able to say, even, which is a very interesting statement. Um, later on in this lesson, uh, Swami just says quite simply, you have to be kind to people. And so few people are able to think about serving others, you know, put themselves aside sufficiently to serve others, that if you do that even a little bit, it so, um, becomes so meaningful to people. Now, I know sometimes people will say, you're not listening to me, I'm not being heard. Sometimes I laugh because I say, no, I've heard you perfectly clearly. I disagree with you. Read my lips. I don't agree. You know, it's not that I haven't heard you. I've listened astutely and I think I just can't go along with you. But if you really do listen, and, and you know, there's a, a method that, uh, a, a way of expressing yourself that I've found to be extremely helpful, even if you know that you're not going to be able to give someone what they want, Swami puts, puts this elsewhere, make it clear to them that if you could, you would. You know? That, that it's not like you enjoy denying what they ask for. And sometimes I will say, you know, I'll just say, you know, that's just a... Uh, I can really see why that would be a good plan. I can really see why that would work for you. I can really see how, you know, why you would want that to happen. But this is the dilemma that I face. But, but at least, Swamiji says, you get people to say yes first, instead of saying, no, that's impossible. And then, then there's never a point at which the person feels that you're flowing with them. 
But if you enter into their reality and feel where their energy is trying to go, even if you know you're not going to be, go- be able to go with them, if you can just show them that you, you get it, you get what they want, and then here's the other side of it that I'm having to deal with. But they see that you've entered in instead of just saying no like this. That's the combination of patience and astuteness that you have to follow at all times. Um, sometimes I've also found personally that I try to just present the dilemma back to them. You know, what would you do? I know someone once was very upset about an individual's behavior with good cause. The individual was really quite out of line and was causing a lot of disharmony. But um, in our particular situation, and in many situations, um, you have to put up with people. So I said, well, here's a suggestion. Why don't we drag that individual out into the center of the courtyard and shoot him? (laughs) You know, it was sort of like... um, And of course, that was a ridiculous idea because we don't have public executions or private ones. But you know, it just wasn't possible. We couldn't just get this person out of our life. It wasn't an option to get them out of our life. So, and, and, and the second thing was, the person was not going to change it. You know, the tiger was not going to change his stripes merely because some people didn't like those stripes. It was like, this is the reality that we're dealing with. So sometimes, you know, in that case, presenting an absurd idea, but also it was like, help me figure out how we're going to balance this. You know, yes, your complaints are very valid, but so is that other person's essentially right to be respected and to be part of the family. So how are we going to balance this? Sometimes you ask someone else to solve the dilemma and you serve them in that case by helping them to sort of think bigger. And it doesn't, it's not entirely just that you're, you're a dumbo. It's that you also are sort of bewildered by this situation and what can we do? Now again, that has to be astute because you're not really turning the decision over. I know once Swamiji again, in another situation, brought to a small group of us the apparent right to make a very key decision. And uh, when I was writing about that later in the book that I wrote about him, um, I I mentioned, you know, how remarkable that was. And then he sort of said to me, of course, I would never have turned such a decision over to you. (laughs) He said, but I knew in myself what was right and I knew that you would also see it. But he presented it to us in such a way that allowed us to tune in to what was happening. And he was astute enough to realize that we would. So a lot of times you you sort of prepare the ground and then you can present a certain reality and allow people to buy into it. But you have created sufficient magnetism around that that you're not really opening it up. You know, it's it's not... It's not appropriate for a leader to say, gee, what do you all think we should do? You know, people want a leader who has some magnetism for what they're doing. And even if the, that the leader is wise enough not to impose that magnetism, it always has to be present in the room. You know, And then what that does is that sets a vibration that other people can contribute to and find. See, that, that's the very delicate line, and that's what Swami has always done so beautifully, is that he holds this this force. And as he says in here, not every decision is critical. And he says as much as possible, he'll give in on every point that he can give in so that when he's actually facing something that he can't give in on, 
people will recognize how fair he has been up until that point. And he, he describes in here how, how he sacrificed the entire look of Ananda and the entire architectural style of Ananda village, much to the total eternal detriment of that community. Because in the, in the early 70s, he came in and he said, and he writes about it, and I remember it, he said, you know, let's have a uniform architectural style. And he'd grown up in Europe, and he, he knew what Europe looks like, you know, the Italian cities where people build with the same materials, they have the same general roof lines. And so you see what looks like a village. It doesn't look like a sub- suburban er- uh, neighborhood. It looks like a village, because you can see that there was a cohesive intelligence behind it. Oh, my God, what a hue and cry was raised when he suggested that. I mean, it was just so beyond what you could imagine you know, imposition of someone else's will. We have our freedoms. You know, it's, my home is my own. I'm going to build it in my way. And even though Swamiji knew what he was sacrificing, I mean, just imagine those of you who've been to Ananda village, what it would be like if you drove in and there was, and it looked like one place instead of just a, what it looks like now, which is still just a random collection of buildings. You know, there, there's no architectural symmetry there's, a, there's a little bit of architectural symmetry to the expanding light, finally, but just a little bit, but nowhere else. And just imagine if we had built, spent all that time and built in a way that was consistently beautiful. Swamiji himself says, I mean, it, it actually broke his heart. I think that was one of the hardest, hardest compromises. Well, I wouldn't, that's not true. He says Ananda's 95% compromise. So I don't even think I know of any of the others. But he said it was a very, that was a very hard one for him because he was the only one who knew what we were losing. And it took the rest of us 25 years, as he writes in here. Once people started traveling to Europe, they began to realize what he'd had in mind and that we just weren't co- uh, cosmopolitan enough to appreciate it and not selfless enough to recognize the importance of it. But even on such a point, he gave in. Because it wasn't really about the real essence of Ananda. It was... It was vitally important, but comparatively not as important as. And at the time that he was fighting that battle, he didn't have enough support. And if he had had just taken a stand at that point, he couldn't have won. And it was much too important a battle. He couldn't afford to be seen as a person who didn't have the magnetism, you know, to, to move the energy forward. You see how that, it's interesting. You know, David and I have been here and in charge of this community for, like, we actually realized it was 23 years. We were figuring it out last night, which is a long time. I've not faced, and truthfully, I've not faced one situation ever in, in private with individuals or in groups where I don't have him, him, Swami, as an example. You know, and a lot of things I didn't understand at the time or didn't believe at the time but they just act themselves out right in front of me. And I don't always do what he would have recommended, but I always suffer if I don't. (laughs) And then realize in retrospect, if I had only handled it the way he taught me to handle it, then um, it would have come out in the right way. He, He also, he uses this phrase, and I have to balance this, I said, you know, don't take on a losing battle because you can't afford to be seen that way. But then he says, people in leadership positions often worry about losing face blustering in an attempt to prove themselves right. And so one of the principles that Swamiji says is, you have to be willing to accept blame. And oftentimes you have to accept blame even for things that you didn't do, 
just so that people will stop trying to blame someone, among other things, so that you can get whatever it is that's caused the controversy off the table and just move forward. And also, you know, it's very um, nerve-wracking to work under a leader who's always looking to make it somebody else's fault. Because then your creativity is always trapped by the anxiety about, if I risk anything, I'm going to be in trouble. And then it becomes so much easier to say no. I mean, it's just an absolute recipe for mediocrity. Because if you're going to be expansive and you're going to be creative in what you're doing, not all of your ideas are going to work. I I laugh sometimes because, you know, sometimes we all make really dumb decisions. One of my favorite expressions is, it seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) You know? Because it did. But it didn't turn out to be a good idea. And one of the, if, you, if you create an atmosphere in which people will be either humiliated or penalized or embarrassed or diminished in some way by taking risks, because if it, if it goes wrong, it, you know, there'll be, the blame will fall on their head, then those people will never grow, creativity will never flourish, and you'll never get the best out of anyone, and all the responsibility and all the creativity will have to be on you. But even if when people take mistake, make mistakes, you know, the leader is always responsible in a real sense. Because if things go wrong, the one person has to be the one that says, what happens on my watch is my responsibility. And that's just the way it is. Even if I trusted the wrong person and they messed up, I trusted the wrong person. And you have to be courageous and confident enough in yourself to be able not only to do that, but to model that for others. Uh, you know, there has to be this, because it gives people so much confidence in, and, and makes them feel so secure if somebody really takes responsibility. And then it, it teaches them how they can take responsibility also because they see it modeled in front of them. Let's take a little short break and then we'll go on from there. Okay, let's go on for a little bit longer here. Yes, let's have a question. Is this about Tibet or about the lesson? <laughs> okay. I think you've sort of answered it, but I'll ask anyway. Um, is a leader born, or can you actually learn to be a leader? I think you can really learn a lot about leadership. In one lifetime? Absolutely in one <laughs> lifetime. However, however, you know, um, I'll never sing as well as you sing, because, because you've spent more lifetimes learning to sing than I have. So I, can, I could sing better than I sing if I applied myself, but I'll never sing as well as you do because you just started farther ahead of me. And leadership is an instinct. And some people have an instinct for it. And they're born with it because they just have a feel for it. They, they have a feeling for people's consciousness. And it's an art form they're interested in. See, not, not everybody is, is interested in the art form of working through other people's energies. Some people are much more interested in working with their own creativity. They're just not interested in other people's creativity. It's, it's, I mean, I'm speaking personally. It's a battle that I've had to fight. I've learned to be a much better leader, and I have a certain instinct for it, but I have such a strong streak in me of what I would call being a creative artist, which doesn't mean that I'm that good at it. It's just that I like my own ideas, you know? <laughs> and um, that's fine. It's just, but that's not always leadership. In leadership, you have to be interested in fostering other people's ability also. It's not just a question of, 
of what you can do and how clever you can be and how good your ideas are. It's the, the art form, the medium of your art is everybody's energy. And, you know, just grasping that concept is a big step forward. And then the, the very ideas he describes here, and, you know, he's written on this subject. He has a little book called The Art of Supportive Leadership, which is really just the principles, and it's, it's a masterpiece. And I've studied that book a lot, and, you know, the principles are in my mind. And, again, it's one of those things that, oh, I see here. I mean, I, one of the points he has here, for example, is you should never put other people at a disadvantage. And, and to say, for example, Swami Kriyananda in our community was the only person who knew Master. No one else in our community knew Master directly. He was directly trained by Master and given positions of leadership. So there's like you would think, gee, this gives him like a certain right to be a leader, doesn't it? And Swami never asserted that. When I was saying it wasn't even until the 90s. In the 90s, he said something like, you know, I did live with Master. And I am the only one among you who did. Gee, maybe that counts for something. But, but in all the years prior to that, he never said that. Because once he says that, everybody else is completely disempowered because there's no answer to it. I lived with Master and you didn't. Conversation stops. And, and that is what he calls in his other book, The Last Resort of a Weak Leader is to claim a special power that no one else can have access to. And you only do that if you're weak. Because if you're weak, you have to get up, you have to have something up on people. If you're strong, you can work with their energy and and inspire them into whatever reality you already perceive, but inspire them because they themselves have understood it. Not because you've taken away from them the right to think about it. And even if you don't have a unique relationship with the guru who's guiding the ashram, And Swami had every right in the world to claim that. And that was what made it all the more interesting that he never did. Because once he did that, who could think? You know, I know, you don't. And that's how he did it. But um, the same thing is to say, my intuition tells me. Or even worse, God told me. (laughs) I mean, that's a really terrible one. You know, God told me to do this. Somebody was trying to assert that to me on, on something, and I said, you know... Even if he walked in here and told me directly, I would still only do it if I had the time to do it. You know, it just doesn't matter. It's like reality has to meet idealism here. But, but you have to be very careful of that because often the leader does have access to special things, special forces, special understanding. But Swamiji himself says, has said to me often, you know, you have to win people by sweet reason and you have to win, you have to win them by the power of the truth. You can't win them because you have overpowered them with another reality. So, with all the strength that Swami has within him, he's, he always underplays it. And even when, he had, when, when what came to him really did come to him from God himself, he'll say, this seems like a good idea, what do you think? And you know, only after, only after you know him for a really long time do you realize he would never have brought that up if he didn't really feel it very strongly. But for a long time, I mean decades, People didn't know that because he said it so naturally. It seems like a good idea. What do you think? And then only later did you realize the magnitude of the revelation that he was presenting. But if he'd presented in that way, he would have had a bunch of people who just waited for him to speak. And you would have no further leaders. So, um, some uh, David Frowley, who's you know a well-known person in the field, 
commented that he thought that of all the ashrams, he actually said all the ashrams in America, he might have said all the ashrams in the world, he said the only one he thought would actually continue to flower after the death of the leader was Ananda. Because it was the only ashram he saw, I'm just quoting him, in which people had actually become leaders in their own right. You know, And when you really think about it, it is a remarkable factor that you can have such a powerful figure at the center, have, a, have such a powerful figure who is so revered and respected, and still have so many leaders in their own right. You know, in the 23 years that we've been here, I've mentioned to you all, Swamiji has given us two, two direct don't-do-thats. And almost none, almost nothing. He's, he said almost nothing directly. You know, but, but he himself says, um, he, he, he projects his consciousness, and if we want to tune into it, we can. But then, you see, it's your, it's your um, rising to the energy rather than having it imposed upon you and then you act obediently. Which is, acting obediently looks like it's going to accomplish more because in the short run it can. But in the long run, it doesn't. Because in the end, when you don't have somebody to be obedient to, you don't know how to think. And what I've always loved about Swamiji, which I've tried my best to emulate, and in this one I think I've done better than some, I, um, I always like people to know what's behind any decision. You know, I don't like to just present a decision. I, at, because that's what Swami does. He tells you what, what his reasoning is. He does that for several reasons, because sometimes you might have a better sense of it. But also, that trains you to think the way he thinks. Well, this is the problem as I see it. You know, so-and-so may, in fact, be exactly what you say and may be causing the difficulties exactly that you say. But on the other hand, you know, they've also contributed like this and there's a certain loyalty that belongs here and now we have these two realities conflicting with each other. So how do we resolve? Because in a position of leadership, what you do have is you have a broader picture. And so, yes, that does make perfect sense and then these are the other factors that influence and let's figure out how they all go together. And then also when people... You've respected people. You've respected the fact that they have a right to know. You've respected the fact that they have the reasoning power to see it. You've respected their maturity to be able to handle the information. You know, in an ashram context, all of that is extremely important. But even in a business context, you want people to be able to participate with you, not merely do what you say. Because if they only do what you say, then you have to do everything. And that's really where where you just end up nowhere. Swamiji says he remembers at the point at which Seva at that time, who was in charge of publications, came to him with ideas that he, that he didn't think were particularly good. And he had much better ideas. But he said, if I don't let her use her ideas and I just make her use mine, he said, I'll have to run that business for the rest of my life. <laughs> so he just went along with her ideas. And over time, what he cultivated was her and, and the stronger she became, then the more he was able to accomplish because she was creating a whole vortex of positive, creative energy over here that would never have been created if he hadn't um, just... Because most decisions are not critical to the progress of the situation. Only some are. Only a few actually relate to the fundamental principles. And, and others, there's many paths. That's a hard one for someone like me. That's been the hardest thing for me to learn because I like my own ideas. 
The hardest thing for me to learn, and my husband is always saying this to me, Asha, it doesn't matter. It's taken me years to really understand. It really doesn't matter. It really just could be done five or six ways, you know, and I might like it better done this way, but it really doesn't matter. You would think I would have learned it faster, but I didn't. (laughs) Um, Those who work under you will enjoy working with you if you respect and like them, like them, and if you treat them well. You know, leadership is not a love affair, but you really have to like the people that you're working with, and you have to like them on some deep level. Because if they feel that you really do, you really are on their side of the equation. You know, it just means everything to people. It's so hard to function when you're made to feel insecure about your fundamental worthiness. And if... if and, and that's something, again, that you cultivate from a spiritual perspective. You just cultivate the ability to see what goodness there might be in people. Then even if you have to fire them or oppose them, they still feel that there was a certain loyalty and friendship there. And you can't fake that. That's your job as a leader, to really cultivate sufficient, expansive spiritual consciousness that you can really project that to others. And that, you're, and that they feel that you're really loyal to them on a deeper level. So that even, as I say, when you have to disappoint them, even fire them, they, they sense that you're still with them. Now, not everybody will receive that. Some people just won't. Um, but he also says in there, how does he put it, if you yourself are a positive, joyful person, people will want to work with you. You know, in every enterprise that we've, I've ever been part of with Ananda, you know, if there's somebody in the center of it who's having a good time, everybody wants to be there. Uh, at the, in the early years of Ananda, we were running this um, large organic garden. And Ananta, who's now back at Ananda Village working on gardens, he and his wife Maria ran that for a long time. And Ananta's a big man. He's about 6'5". This was, you know, in the 70s and the 80s when he was actually in the 70s, he did. He's a great big fellow, extremely physically strong. And it's a huge garden. And he, he can do the work of five men anyway. But he was generally, in the very hot summers, he was generally dressed in nothing but a pair of little running shorts because it was 100 degrees and he was out in the sun with a big, big hat, barefoot. But he wouldn't even just walk from place to place. You would see him sort of loping across the fields, you know? And no matter what was going on, it was always just an adventure to him. You know, the machines would break, the crops would freeze, the water system would come down. Whatever it happened to be, he just would always approach it as well. This is a new adventure. And as a consequence, he had a whole team of people who just really wanted to be there with him because whatever was going on, he always had that that sense of joyful adventure. If the leader is dour, the whole project is just a drag. You know, I don't, I don't work for Apple and I don't really know Steve Jobs at all, but he seems to have a good time. You know, he just seems to have a good time about what he's doing. He has a good, seems to have a sense of humor, sense of fun. I mean, certainly their products reflect that. You just get the feeling that they're enjoying themselves. And of course, a lot of the really successful companies are, were started by people who were so young that they really were having a good time. Um, but it's much more than that. It's much more of an inward feeling about that, that just... The adventure of this. I have to tell the story of Ananta and the planning commission. Some of you have heard it, but it was so terrific. We had for a while, 
we tried to incorporate Ananda as a California city, and I was in charge of the project, and Ananda always called me Madam the Mayor, is what he called me during the course of that whole project. And, and the, the gardeners were out there, and the gardeners were the tackiest, crummiest, dirtiest people all the time because they were always working in, as they tactfully said it, the soil. It wasn't dirt, it was the soil. But they were covered with it much of the time. And they, because it was so hot and because we were really poor, they would just wear little running shorts. The men would mostly wear little running shorts, no shirts, these big battered hats, and then they would just work out there. And I was Madam the Mayor working on this big project, and we had to have the whole planning commission come out to visit our community to see what it was like. And I said to Ananta, you know, we have to be ourselves, but this is really important. These people have to get the impression that we're more than just hippies out here. So I used to walk over the hill down to the farm area, and the day that the planning commission was coming, and I'd warned Ananta about this, I come walking over the hill, and I see, when they see me come over, that all the gardeners are all gathered in some place, and I could sense this. And when I finally got down to where they were, they were all gathered, and he lines them up. He calls out, Madam the Mayor, like this. <laughs> and all these young men, in their running shorts, in their tennis shoes or bare feet, their bare chest, their straw hats, all turn around, but they've all put on a necktie. <laughs> and right across their soil-covered chest, they all are wearing ties. And then they salute Madam the Mayor. And Nanda says, I trust this meets with your satisfaction. <laughs> I mean, how can you not enjoy yourself? You know, it just makes... It was a very important meeting, but how can you not enjoy yourself? You know, the leader needs to always just Remember that we're really just here to have a good time, whatever else we're doing. Isn't that wonderful? That was 25 years ago. I've never forgotten it. Okay. Let me think with us. Oh, they loved us. We were remarkable. But we lost the whole thing anyway because no one else in the world supported us. Yeah, we were remarkable because the whole place had that spirit. We were, you know, we had nothing to show materially, but, you know, they just had never seen people who were living the way we were living. And some of them saw it. Um, Let me just think a few other things here that I haven't really touched on that I need to. I think here's another very important point. I was talking about a leader should have fun, but a leader should also, and he puts it here, should not concern himself excessively with his own comfort and convenience. You know, a leader has to be it's not merely that a leader has to be willing to do the jo- any job in the store, but a leader also has to make it clear that he's really there to make it work for everyone and he's not there primarily to make it work for himself. David, um, my husband, when he started this restaurant, this coffee house that he started in Denver that was a tremendously successful restaurant, I mean, it was opened like till three in the morning and at midnight, you know, there was a line just still going around the block. I mean, he started with, they started with just nothing. He said they used to just sit in the restaurant with their feet up and wait for a customer to come in, but just gradually. But he always took upon himself to clean the bathrooms, especially at the beginning. His job was always to clean the bathrooms, and he would just go in and just make those bathrooms absolutely spotless. You know, it's not a pleasant job. No one likes cleaning bathrooms. But it was like, I'm not here just to be the, the one who greets everybody and has all this thing. I'm here to just make this project work. And so a leader has to really have it in his mind 
that my intention here is to make this work. And whatever is needed, we'll make it work. And in the early years, we have all lots of volunteers involved now, but I, I still remember one of our very first Christmas Eves, or no, it must have been a little later because we were in the community, and we had just had this huge, already, so many activities, and it was like five in the afternoon, and it just sort of occurred to us that the, you know this whole situation had to be completely set up. And we, you know, we were both just dog-tired, but it, we just realized that no one else was going to do it if we didn't do it. So we just went over, we moved all the chairs, we vacuumed, we put everything out, because there has to be this sense that the leader is going to get the job done. And, and that, again, that gives people so much confidence that there's somebody behind them, that, that there's a real force there. And if you do that and you do it joyfully, everybody will want to be part of it, because the truth is it's more fun to be like that. Sitting back, waiting, sniping, being lazy, and none of that is fun. And again, the leader has to do it not as an act. Look, you see how, you know, and then you go out with your entourage and your photographers and you clean the bathroom. You can't do that, really. You just have to go and clean the bathroom because it needs to be done. Just, and that sets, again, the example to everyone that, oh, we're just here to get the job done. Swamiji was always like that. He was always in the middle of whatever was happening. And just totally, I mean, he wasn't gardening, but, but he was working harder than anyone else doing his part of the story without any resentment or anything like that, just not, not reminding us. But just after a while, you watched and you thought, oh, this is how it's really done. So I think... Here's another just an interesting point. A, le- a good leader must lead and cannot let himself be pushed about except in fun. This is the balance between patience, kindness, and astuteness. If you are the leader, you have to maintain a certain dignified position as a leader. You can't allow people to not sense the magnetism that you have. You know. And, and Swami uses that word dignity a number of times. It's very interesting. He'll say, you know, something, you really ought not to do that. That's not dignified, he'll say. And you think you have to reflect on that. That's not the same as ego. But you recognize that if I have responsibility for this, I have to maintain a certain um, integrity in that responsibility. And I can't afford to just be a (laughs) goof-off. You know what I mean? And I can't afford to let people perceive me as someone that they can just kind of randomly disregard. But again, that has to be a very astute position. And also it comes out of an inner sense of being responsible, not out of an inner sense of wanting to have position. You see the difference? If there's an inner sense of responsibility, you keep an awareness of what's really going on. And then you you realize sometimes that things can cross over into a kind of energy that isn't really going to serve the cause of what you're trying to do. And that sometimes, out of kindness to people, you have to stand up to them, not let them just act as if you don't exist. And that's serving them. That's the, that's, the, that's the important point you have to realize. It's not serving yourself, it's serving them. So, the last thing he says, which I've already talked about, is that, above all, be joyful inside. Realize that it's all a divine play and all we're ever doing is just being instruments of the light. And if we keep that foremost, then everything else falls from that. So, I think that covers it sufficiently. Are we satisfied? Okay. Next week we'll go on then to lesson 11. And on the subject of leadership, I highly recommend his little book, How to Be a Supportive Leader. 
If you're in any position of leadership, I really encourage you to find and read that book. Okay, very good.